0: Would you please open your Bibles to the Epistle of Romans? Romans chapter 1. Last week I had a unique opportunity to share the gospel with two Muslim men from the Middle East on two different occasions once on Sunday and then again on Monday. It was a unique experience. And the reason it was unique was because something happened that I wish happened more. I was not anxious or afraid. I was able to speak with reasonable clarity and calmness. Normally, when I'm speaking with an unbeliever, I don't know if this matches your experience, I'm pretty gunshy about sharing the gospel, sometimes even scared, scared of what they will think of me, scared that it may hinder the relationship, scared that they may think that I'm a fanatic. And so sometimes when I'm with unbelievers that I know and that I love, I won't even bring up spiritual matters. I need to grow in this area. I want to be increasingly unashamed of the gospel, eager to preach the gospel. What about you? We begin a new series this morning in Paul's Epistle to the Romans. And this morning we'll cover the introduction to this letter in verses 1 to 17. There's so much that I could say about this passage. could give a full lecture on all that is contained within the book of Romans to get us started in this four-month series this year, and then we'll have even more in 2024. But as I was sharing with our preaching team this last week, I was like, I don't want to give a lecture on Romans. I want to preach a sermon on Romans. I don't want to plow. I want to proclaim what is here. And so as I studied this, one verse really stood out to me that has captured my attention, and that is in verse 15, where Paul says, I am eager to preach the gospel. That is quite a statement. As Paul launches this magisterial letter, letter that is be called, be, be called, has been called one of the most important books in the entire Bible, he says, I'm chomping at the bit to preach the gospel. What made him so eager to preach the gospel? That's the question. That I want an answer to. That's the question. Because that's what I want. I want to be eager to preach the gospel at all times. And I want this church to grow in its eagerness to preach the gospel as well. So as we look at the first 17 verses of this chapter together, let us listen For the reasons that Paul was so eager to preach the gospel. And let us pray, even as we read, that his eagerness would rub off on us just a little. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some spiritual harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. There's a lot here, but my sermon this morning is quite simple. We should be eager to preach the gospel. I think that's why Paul wrote this introduction to this letter to demonstrate his eagerness to preach the gospel and to give the reasons why he was eager to preach the gospel to the Romans, but also to all that he encountered. I see four reasons that he's eager to preach the gospel, and I'm praying that we as a church will grow in our eagerness as we look closely at Paul's four reasons. First, Paul's eager to preach the gospel because it is a privilege and a responsibility to preach the gospel. In verse 1, Paul begins by saying three things about himself. First, that he's a servant of Christ Jesus. Literally, a slave of Christ Jesus. Christ is his master. His life is all about serving Jesus, his master. And his master had given him a responsibility. Remember, when the risen Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus, he not only saved him, At that same time, and here's the second thing Paul talks about, he called him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. In other words, and here's the third thing he says about himself, he was set apart by Jesus for gospel ministry. So why does Paul preach the gospel so eagerly? Because he's been given a responsibility To do so. Now we're not apostles. We've not seen the risen Christ. The gospel was not directly given to us. But the risen Christ did authorize the church to go. And to make disciples of all nations. And how do we do that? By proclaiming the apostolic gospel to the nations. We too have been given marching orders by our risen Lord, by our Master. We are His servants. We have a responsibility. But it's not only a responsibility. It's not only duty. It's also a privilege. What is the message that Paul declared? He is called to declare the gospel of God. It is a message that is directly from God. That's one way to understand what he means when he says it's the gospel of God. It's from God, but it's also a gospel about God. About specifically what God has done to save a people for himself through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. He has given us a great treasure in the gospel. We are, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we're simply jars of clay. We're weak. We're feeble. So to think of the amazing truth that we have treasure in these jars of clay. We... Weak as we are, have been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. What an amazing privilege to go to the nations as an ambassador for Christ. To announce the good news of what God is doing to save a people for himself. So a privilege and a responsibility. That's the first reason Paul was eager to preach the gospel. And the first reason that we ought to be eager as well. Second, we should be eager to preach the gospel because in the gospel, God is fulfilling His promise to save the nations. This comes out in verses 2 to 8. After stating His responsibility to preach... He goes on in verse 2 to define the gospel that he is responsible to preach. Now, this is an introduction to the letter. And there's a sense in which, in order to understand how Paul is defining the gospel, we're going to have to look closely at the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, which is what we will do over the next four months. But in his introduction, he gives a taste of what is to come. He starts by assuring them that the gospel that he proclaims, the gospel of God, is not entirely new. It was promised beforehand by the prophets, recorded in the scriptures. So that's the first thing that he tells us about the gospel. But he also starts by announcing that the main thing the gospel is about, it is about Jesus. It is concerning His Son. So it's through the prophets, it's in the Scriptures, it's concerning His Son. But how do these two things fit together? The promise in the Scriptures and the person of His Son. Well, remember the promises that God made in the scriptures. The promise that He made to Abraham, for example, that through His offspring all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. All of the families, all of the peoples of the earth would be blessed. And remember the promise that He made to David, as we've learned so recently. In the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, that through one of David's offspring, he would establish an everlasting kingdom over all of the nations. In Psalm 2, God makes a promise that he would set his king, this Messiah, this son of David, on Zion. And God would say of this king, you are my son, Today I have begotten you, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. The promises to Abraham, to David, promises announced in the sun, all of those were pointing to Jesus, the offspring of Abraham, the offspring of of David. Descended from David, we are told, according to the flesh, but also appointed to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Now, this can sound confusing. Jesus was not made the Son of God at his resurrection. He was already the Son of God. But when God raised Jesus from the dead. He was fulfilling the promise that He had made in Psalm 2 and in other places that Jesus was now not only the King, but the Lord over all of the nations. Psalm 2 says, All who will not bow the knee to King Jesus, they will be judged. But all who kiss the Son, Who do bow the knee to Him. They will find refuge in Him. They will be blessed in Him. So now Paul is given a commission. To go and announce that in Jesus. The fulfillment of all of these scriptures. Has come to pass. Announcing the good news. That Jesus is the Messiah. The Savior. And not only that. He is Lord over all. His task as expressed in verse 5, is to bring about the obedience of faith among all of the nations. This is an important phrase. We know it's important because it's found not only here at the very beginning of Romans, but it's also found at the very end of Romans. The exact phrase. The obedience of faith. What does it mean? I think it means two things. One is it is obedience to the call to believe the gospel. As the gospel goes to the nations, and as you go and share the gospel with people, we are to call them to believe. And when a person believes the gospel, they are responding in obedience of faith. But I believe that the obedience of faith is also obedience that flows from faith in the gospel. The right response to Jesus is to believe not only that He's Savior, but it's to submit to Him as Lord. The mission that Christ has given the church is not simply to make converts. It's to make disciples who obey Everything that Christ has commanded us. The church at Rome, Paul says, is evidence that the promise of God is being fulfilled now among the nations. In the capital city of the most powerful nation on the earth, people have come to believe the gospel. In verse 6, Paul says, the gospel that is for all nations includes you. Speaking to the Romans who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. In verse 7, he addresses his letter to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. This language is language from the Old Testament, being loved, being called. And in the Old Testament, who does it describe? It describes God's people. Israel, But now that same language is being applied to a church that is made up largely of Gentiles. And now news of their faith is being proclaimed in all of the world. Do you get the significance of this? God's plan that started 2,000 years, maybe further back than that, announced to Abraham... Announced later to David is coming to fruition in Paul's ministry. People from the nations are being saved and it gets Paul up in the morning. Does it get you up in the morning? He is excited. He is motivated. It makes him eager to continue to preach the gospel. He's thankful for what God has done in Rome. He's thankful for what God has done in all of the other areas that he has ministered. But he's not content with that. He wants to see the gospel continue to bear fruit among the nations. And so one of the reasons he's writing this letter and introducing his gospel is he wants to set up shop in Rome so that the gospel can go further west to Spain. We'll learn more about that. In chapter 15. So he's introducing now his gospel. So that they may get behind him. And support him in the gospel going even further than Rome. We too should be eager to preach the gospel like Paul. Because even though the gospel has made so much progress in the world there are still so many people groups, so many nations all over the world who don't even have access to the gospel. Even if they wanted to hear the gospel, there's no one to preach the gospel to them. So many people who have never heard, but God has promised in His word that He will bless all of the peoples of the earth. That promise should make us eager and confident to go and proclaim the gospel to the nations. So gospel ministry is a privilege and a responsibility, and through the gospel of God, he is fulfilling his promises to save the nations. The third reason we should be eager to preach the gospel is because the gospel not only saves the lost, it also strengthens the saved after Paul thanks God for the Roman Christians, verse 7, in verse 9, he says that he's been praying for them. He's been praying that he can come to them. And we know that one reason he wants to come to them is so that he can establish a missionary base in Rome for his work in Spain. But he doesn't mention that till the end of the letter. Before he does that, he says he has another reason for wanting to come to Spain. Look at verse 11. He says he wants to strengthen the church in Rome. In verse 13, he says he wants to reap a harvest among them. Now, presumably, that means that there are still more people who have not been saved in Rome that will be saved in Rome, that they will be converted. But the fruit of gospel ministry that he is speaking of here is not only initial conversion. It also involves their sanctification. To use the language that we use on here, sure, the gospel is to go wide, but the gospel is also to grow deep in God's people. And so as verse 15 says, Paul is eager to preach the gospel also to believers in Rome. After 11 chapters of expounding the gospel, Paul applies the gospel to the lives of believers. In chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, you're very familiar with it. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not conform to this world, but be transformed. By the renewal of your mind. In Paul's mind, the gospel is not only to convert believers, unbelievers, it's also to change believers. The gospel is for all kinds of people, it's for Jews and Gentiles. As Paul says in verse 14, it's for Greeks and barbarians, for the wise and for the foolish. I love what he's doing here. He's saying the gospel is not just for the educated, it's for the uneducated. But he's also making the point that we may miss here that the gospel is not just for non-Christians. It's also for Christians. We don't ever graduate from the gospel. You've heard me say that. So many times. It's not just a message that tips us into the church. It's a message that strengthens us in the church. We are called to offer our lives as a living sacrifice, right? By the mercies of God. So as we seek to go and live our lives for God, we don't forget the mercies of God. The gospel is present fueling our obedience to what God has called us to do in his commands. The gospel informs and motivates our sanctification. We see this pattern throughout the scriptures. Even the Ten Commandments places the gospel right alongside the law. The Ten Commandments don't start with the law, do they? They start with the gospel. How do they start? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's gospel. You shall have no other gods before me. Commandments and gospel go together. When Paul calls the church at Corinth to flee sexual immorality, he grounds it in the gospel. Flee sexual immorality, for you were bought with a price. When Paul calls husbands to love their wives in Ephesians 5, he grounds it in the gospel. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Paul was eager to preach the gospel to all People, yes, to unbelievers, but he knows that even the believers at Rome still don't fully get the gospel, and neither do we. We're never done with it. It must be baked into our entire discipleship program. We don't ever graduate from it. It's not only for the lost, it also strengthens the church. That should make us eager. To be gospel people. Fourth. We should be eager to preach the gospel. Because it is the power of God. This is actually the primary reason. Paul is eager to preach the gospel. In verse 15. He says I'm eager to preach the gospel. Then in verse 16. I think he's stating the same thing. Negatively. So what is what does he want to do? He wants to preach the gospel. Negatively, he states it, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And why is he not ashamed of the gospel? Why is he eager? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the gospel of God, that's where he began, verse 1, is the power of God. That's where he ends this introduction. The gospel is what God uses to accomplish God's plan of saving a people for himself. I think you know it, but it's good to be reminded We have never saved anyone. Right? God saves. And God saves through God's means. His means are the gospel. That's why we should be eager to preach it and not come up with our own methods thinking that we are wiser than God. Later in chapter 10, Paul will say, only those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And the only way a person can call on the name of the Lord is to believe in Jesus. But how do people come to believe in Jesus if they have never heard? And how will they hear unless someone preaches to them? We should be eager to preach the gospel because it is God's way and the only way to get his work of salvation done. But how does God's gospel work in power to save? Verse 17 tells us, for in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. This is a critical verse in the letter. It is the transition into the body of the letter. But what does it mean? We've got to look at the whole letter to get a full sense of what it means. But we can make a start today. The righteousness of God. What is it? It's clearly an attribute of God. We will see that in the next section. Paul will contrast the righteousness of God with the unrighteousness of man. But it's not only an attribute of God. It not only refers to God's moral perfection. You see, you can't separate God's attributes from His actions. And so when we speak of the attribute of God's righteousness, we must connect it with God's action. In salvation. We see this in the Old Testament. The righteousness of God and the salvation of God are often linked together as they are here in verses 16 to 17. Think of Psalm 71 2, for example. Just listen to the parallelism in the verse. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. So God's righteousness, and God's salvation together. The same thing in Isaiah 51. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out. So God's attribute of righteousness is linked with His action of salvation. But the question that Romans is eager to answer is how can a righteous God save sinners? Sinners? Wouldn't God fail to do right if He lets sinners off of the hook? How can God be just and let the guilty go free? He does so through Jesus Christ. Jesus, who was without sin, lived a perfect life. But not only that, He also died to pay the penalty for the sins of of his people. This is the gospel. And all who hear and believe the gospel are saved. And this is a righteous salvation, a just salvation. God's justice is satisfied because Jesus paid the penalty that we deserve to pay in our sins. And not only that, his righteousness is imputed to all who believe, as we'll learn in chapter five. So God can maintain His righteousness through saving sinners. As chapter 3, verse 26 says, He is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. And it is only through faith that we can be saved. There's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. We're saved by grace alone, not by works. In Christ alone alone, Through faith alone. That's why Paul says, For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Or as the NIV puts it, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Faith alone. In Christ alone that saves sinners. Nothing that we can do can save us. It's all about what God has done in Jesus Christ. That's why it's called the gospel of God. So how is the gospel the power of God for salvation? In the gospel, we hear what the righteous God has done to save His people. And through faith in Christ, God makes sinners righteous. Amen? They're given eternal life. Those who were dead in their sins. That's why he ends by saying, the righteous shall live by faith. That is, those who have faith also have eternal life. And only the gospel is powerful to do all of this. Only the gospel is powerful to save. That's why Paul was eager to preach it because he knew That it did God's work. Do you understand the gospel? I hope you have a better understanding of it. After our time this morning in Romans 1. But let me just be honest. You don't quite understand it. I don't quite understand it. We will spend the rest of our lives seeking to grow in a deeper understanding of the gospel. Even a child can understand the gospel on the one hand. But even the most learned theologian does still not grasp all of its depths. Thankfully, over the next four months, we will be taking a close look at the gospel of God. But for now, let me summarize what we've learned so far. It is from God. It's about God. His plan. To save a people for himself. A plan promised long ago by the prophets who pointed to Jesus. A promise to save a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. A promise that is even now being fulfilled as the gospel goes to the nations. A gospel that saves sinners at conversion, but continues to work in them throughout their sanctification It's a gospel that's the very power of God. It reveals how a righteous God can be just in saving sinners like you and me because Jesus paid it all, as we sang last week. And we now receive the righteousness of Christ through faith. More importantly than your understanding, that's important, But the big question is, do you believe it? Not just in your head, but do you trust what is announced in the gospel? Do you trust Jesus to save you from your sins? If you don't, let me encourage you to keep coming in the weeks ahead as well. We will learn next week, and the week after, and the week after. We're going to be talking a lot about sin over the next few weeks. That apart from faith in Christ, we all stand under the wrath of God. For those of you who do believe, are you eager to preach the gospel to those who do not yet believe? As we start this series this morning... That has been my earnest prayer. That as we learn more about the gospel, that we would grow in our eagerness to preach the gospel. In personal evangelism, but not only that. To make the gospel front and center in all of our work of discipleship in the church. and That we would redouble our efforts in prayer to increase workers for the harvest the nations that do not have access to the gospel, that we would recommit ourselves to getting the gospel to them. What God has done for us in Christ, we don't keep to ourselves. We take to the nations. Would you join me in prayer? Father, help us to understand the gospel so that we would become more willing and excited to preach the gospel. There's so much to be learned here, but I pray that this would not simply be an academic exercise for us in the months ahead. It is my great desire that we would marvel at what you have done in Christ, and that we would respond, that you would bring about the obedience of faith in us at First Free. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.